basically two things that I want to make sure everybody's aware of. I know the first one doesn't affect everyone, but it does affect a number of people. Um, for Epic Teens, we have made a decision that we are going to switch up things. We were supposed to be meeting tonight and then off the next two weeks. We're actually going to start being off tonight. So tonight and next week, we will not have Epic Teens. For anybody who has a teenager or knows a teenager that goes, you can let them know. Uh, it will also be put out online and everything today. Um, and that's simply because we're going to have a bunch of students that are not going to be able to be there tonight. And we'd rather wait because it's our Christmas celebration. So we'd rather wait uh, and do that later. So basically, no Epic tonight or next week, and we will be meeting again on January 3rd. Uh, the next announcement is simple. This week, it is Christmas week, and we are having a Christmas Eve service. We announced a little bit of the details last week. Uh, again, if you have any more questions, you can talk to any of us. One thing I didn't say last week is that the Christmas Eve service, at least the portion that's in here, uh, this portion will be live streamed. So if you're not able to be here live or in person, you can be on the live stream to watch that portion of the Christmas Eve service. Um, so it starts at 6 o'clock this Christmas Eve, which... Is that Thursday, right? Yeah, Thursday uh, is Christmas Eve. We're going to be here at 6 o'clock. We'll start with some time in here as we are able to celebrate the birth of Jesus together. And then we'll be moving out to the gymnasium where we'll be singing some carols as we light some candles. And during that time, again, just so everyone is aware, so everyone brings the right, uh, the right apparel, I suppose, uh, we will be wearing masks in the gym just to make sure that we are, uh, even if we're not quite 12 feet apart, that we're as safe as we can be. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. Again, or not next week, but this coming Christmas Eve. So, again, that's coming up 6 o'clock this week. We'd love to have you join us. Um, and, uh, and, of course, uh, I know a lot of times people will bring their family. If your family happens to be in town, we'd love to have them as well. And we're looking forward to the opportunity on Christmas Eve to just take some time to reflect upon the reason for the season, as they say. So we're, oper we're excited about that. All right, well, that's all I have to say. So I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, move out of the way, and then our candle lighting will happen in just a few minutes. Um, and uh, in the meantime, if you've got kids for junior church, now would be the time. All right.
Merry Christmas. We're going to light the candle that represents love today for our Advent season. And I'm going to read from 1 John 4, 9 through 11. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are honored to light the candle for love today. We know that we do not always love the way you love us. Thank you for loving us first, for making a way back to you, for loving us enough to have sent your son to die for our sins. As we celebrate the birth of our Savior in this coming week, grow our hearts, help us to forgive, to love our enemies, to love those hard to love, and keep the hope of your return with peace and joy in our hearts. Grow us to love each other as you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a dragon in my nativity, dreadful and immense. The shepherds quake, the wise men shake, and spill their frankincense. The cattle are alone, and the baby is awake, while Joe and Mary tremble. Oh, this must be some mistake. There's a dragon over Bethlehem. I don't know how he came. I didn't think a donkey could have borne the dragon's frame. I don't believe the census had been called for such as him. And I'm certain that when Dragon knocked, no room was at the inn. There's a dragon by the stable. I don't know why he's there. He hasn't bought a present, and he only seems to glare. He hovers over David's town, that still beneath him lies. Yet no one's sleep is dreamless, underneath his piercing eyes. This dragon is invisible, with ordinary sight. You cannot snap a selfie, or televise his flight. Unseen he stands for every power that stands against the earth. The death, disease and darkness overshadowing each birth. This dragon is an enemy of all that's good and true. This monster lies and steals and kills. He's coming after you. Above each crib the dragon hovers, sure to swallow whole. Rulers, empires, beauty, joy, a flesh and blood black hole. But dragons always meet their match, they always meet their doom. A hero rises to the fight to cast them into gloom. And so at this nativity arose another player, the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was a dragon slayer. He'd come to fight through Hera's plots, through dangers big and small. He took on evil, sickness, death, and triumphed over all. A dragon or a baby? Just who would win the fight? It wasn't really fair, you see. The child was a knight. From high above and long before, he knew what must be done. He knew the dragon waiting here. And still, he chose to come. 
There's a dragon in my nativity, a fierce and monstrous danger, but fierce is still the bravery and love within the manger. in your nativity? Perhaps you should put one in there. <laughs> Seminary professor Joel Beakey speaks well of how Christ's love motivated him to act on our behalf. He writes, love brought him down from heaven to embrace our weak human nature. Love led him into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and to suffer fierce temptation. Love drew him to the cross where his obedience would cover our shame and clothe our nakedness. Love broke the chains of death and brought him out of the grave to bless us. Love showers down on us from his heavenly throne in all the graces of the Spirit. Love will bring him back again to take us to be with him in paradise. But I'd like to add one other crucial piece. Love propelled him into war through which he emerged victorious over our greatest enemy. It's this aspect of Christ's love at Christmas I want to focus on this morning. Ponder this sentence. The prince has come to kill the dragon and rescue the princess. That sentence is a good summary for legends and fairy tales that we've all grown up with, right? Little boys and little girls love stories that involve princes coming to slay dragons and rescue princesses. So with that statement, I could be summarizing a story that we've all heard and loved since childhood. But with every story, there's some kind of context. You've got to know who the characters are. Who's the prince? Who's the princess? Who's the dragon and what's his deal? Why has he captured the princess? And what is the prince going to have to do to rescue the princess? Yes, that little sentence is a good summary for that classic storyline that children all over the world everywhere love. Why is it that that little clip of a storyline undergirds so many movies and comic books and cartoons and video games that we've all perhaps enjoyed throughout our lives? Could it be because it's a reflection of the true story of history? The true story of history can be summarized. The prince has come to kill the dragon and rescue the princess. But you've still got to specify who those characters are. The prince, the princess, and the dragon. As it turns out, I believe that little sentence is a good way to summarize the gospel message. The prince has come to kill the dragon and rescue the princess. That's the fundamental message that we celebrate at Christmas and throughout the year. As Christians, God has sent his son, the prince, to kill the dragon, Satan, the devil, and rescue the princess, the church, all of God's people. So it's fitting as we approach Christmas Day that we would celebrate that storyline, the victory of the prince who has come to kill the dragon and rescue the princess. Not only is this sentence a good summary of the gospel message, but it's also a good summary of the whole Bible. And that should make sense to us, because the gospel message is the main message of the whole Bible. 
The collection of 66 books that we call the Bible tells the grand story of history. And it begins in Genesis and ends in the book of Revelation. And if you follow the storyline all the way through, it's about the prince coming to kill the dragon and rescue the princess. I think it's fitting this morning to consider this angle on the storyline in line with reflecting on the theme of love during Advent Soldiers volunteer to go to war because they love their families and because they love their countries. Jesus volunteered to go to war because he loved his people. So this morning we're going to zoom in on the war and we're going to consider a rarely examined Christmas text, Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, the Apostle John sees a vision unfolded in the sky of the prince coming to kill the dragon and rescue the princess. I suspect dipping into the middle of the book of Revelation is about the last thing you'd expect on the Sunday before Christmas. I only ask that you give me a hearing this morning and look carefully at the scripture and consider how fitting this may be. For some of you, there may be some nervousness in approaching the book of Revelation. You might fear that the book is too hard to understand, too complicated or tricky. Or you might be nervous because you know that there's a lot of disagreement about how even to approach this book. Or, let's just be honest, you might be afraid of having some long-cherished ideas being questioned or challenged. Can I ask you to set aside any of those fears and just join me in looking at this wondrous passage? We may not come out agreeing on every detail. We may not see things the same way, but I promise If you'll stick with me this morning, you will see wonderfully true things. And I pray that you'll be moved to gratitude and to worship because of them. As we approach Revelation 12, I want to start by making an observation that most students of Scripture and most students of this book in particular agree on. It's a good place to start, regardless of their theological positions on the end times. Revelation 12 is the heart of this book. It's the main point and the midpoint. Here's some phrases different folks have used to characterize this chapter. And these phrases are drawn from folks from all over the theological spectrum. Revelation 12 has been called the center and the key to the entire book. Central to what the whole book is about. The theological heart of the book. The great central subject of the whole book. The actual literary center of the book and key to the understanding of the rest of the book. I wonder if the reason we get lost in some of the details, focusing on the individual trees so much that we miss the grandeur of the forest, is because we start in the wrong place. One writer says it this way, Sadly, many people most interested in this book are satisfied to sit around and debate fine points, ignoring the point of it all. God gives us a glimpse of his ultimate victory so that our lives here and now will be a witness. We are like recipients of a precious gift who persist in debating about the type of knot used to tie the bow instead of opening up the present to enjoy what's inside. In a few days, many of you will sit around a Christmas tree and open up presents with your children. I don't expect to hear how your little girl said, Mommy, why did you put the blue bow on this present instead of the red one? I don't expect to hear how two siblings sat across from each other arguing about which wrapping paper is the prettiest. 
But that can be a bit like how we treat the book of Revelation sometimes. We're eager to talk about all of the controversial bits, and we can easily miss the point. So as we look at Revelation 12 this morning, I really do want us to see the main point of this book. What do you think of when you think of the book of Revelation? Do you think of it as a description of how events are going to unfold in the future at the end of history? That is certainly an aspect of the book. The book is driving us toward the conclusion of human history and of God's plan in history. But I don't think that is what the book is mainly about. It's mainly a climactic presentation of the gospel itself. That is certainly what is going on in Revelation 12, at least. One final preliminary word before we dive into the text. This morning, I'm not going to talk about all the different ways of approaching the book of Revelation, and I'm not going to highlight all the different options for understanding this particular passage. Also, I'm going to pass over some details of the passage so that we're better able to focus on the main point of the passage. If you're just burning to know how what I think about something I leave out or don't fully address, or if you're wanting to know how I respond to other perspectives, join us for discussion tonight at 6 p.m. Or email me, or ask me later. Full transparency. Revelation chapter 12 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. So I've worked hard this morning to restrain my comments And I'll apologize ahead of time if my enthusiasm bubbles over to an extreme this morning. Let's begin by looking at Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 12 begins a new section of the book, a new vision that John is shown. So he's recorded the details of what he saw. We're going to see a picture of pregnant Israel. Revelation 12, 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So who is this woman? We must admit that John doesn't tell us explicitly. He doesn't come right out and say, the woman is so-and-so. That means that we have to be very careful about how we identify her. He describes her with certain symbolism. And following the symbolism is the key to identifying who she is. She's clothed with the sun. She's got the moon under her feet as a footstool. And she's got a tiara of 12 stars circling her head. We're supposed to be reminded of the Old Testament story of Joseph when he describes a dream that he had in Genesis 37, 9 and 10. Joseph was a boy who saw these lavish dreams that really upset his brothers. This one in particular upset his whole family. He saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. And his family recognized that the sun represented his father, Jacob, and the moon represented his mother, and the 11 stars were his 11 brothers. And we're to assume, I think, that he is the 12th star. And so this picture from Genesis 37 is the picture of the family of Israel. 
That's what John is shown here, another picture that's supposed to jar his memory to the book of Genesis so that he would recognize this woman as representing the family of Israel. But we can probably be a little bit more specific or precise in how we identify her. She's not just the nation of Israel in general, because we know that throughout the history of Israel, the nation of Israel was rebellious and disobedient to God. To draw attention to Joseph's dream, however, is to highlight Jacob and his wife and the 12 sons of Israel as the original faithful model Israel, the people who were obedient and responsive to God as they were designed to be. What more can we say? In Revelation 12, 2, she's described as pregnant and ready to give birth. She's experiencing contractions, labor pains. Returning to our Old Testament roots again, repeatedly we find the people of Israel being described as a woman in labor, especially in the prophets. We looked at one of those passages a couple of weeks ago in Micah chapter 5. Israel is depicted as a pregnant woman having contractions, ready to give birth to whom? to the Messiah, to the Savior. But again, these prophetic texts aren't describing the nation of Israel in general. Rather, it's the faithful remnant of Israel. The faithful remnant of Israel who is enduring in exile under the judgment of God, but looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. It's the faithful remnant of Israel from whom the Messiah would come. Think about the Christmas story. Who is featured? It's people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's people like Anna and Simeon. It's people like Joseph and Mary, the faithful remnant of Israel, those Jews who were trusting God's promise that he was going to bring a Savior, a Messiah. They were obedient to him and looking forward to the fulfillment of those promises, and they were even being caught up in that fulfillment as they lived their lives. And so that's through whom the Messiah would come. And so this woman that John sees here in Revelation 12 is a picture of Israel herself, the faithful remnant of Israel who would give birth to the Messiah. But that's not all he sees. Verses 3 and 4 show us a satanic monstrosity. Verses 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. We are supposed to be disgusted by this picture. I know many of you have witnessed childbirth, some of you many times. While we all marvel at how wonderful it is, isn't there also something terrifying about it? Perhaps mothers can relate better here. The picture we're supposed to see is this woman in the most vulnerable position of her life. She's giving birth. The baby is ready to come, and her body is giving all attention to that moment. If a threat enters the room when the woman is ready to give birth, she can't protect herself. She can't do anything to ward off the threat because her body is so focused on birthing the baby. We're supposed to see here that this is a gross, nasty, ugly picture. 
because not a doctor or a husband is waiting for, before her to draw the baby out. Instead, a seven-headed red monster is ready to eat the baby. This is supposed to disgust us. This is a gross picture, and it is depicting the devil. The only figure in this vision who's identified explicitly is the dragon. In verse 9, John tells us clearly and plainly that the dragon is Satan. He's the only character in the vision John identifies by name. And so what we're seeing here is Satan attempting to destroy the Messiah. Now, I don't think we're supposed to think of a specific singular moment at the time of Jesus' birth. Instead, this is depicting the devil's opposition to Jesus throughout his life. And I'll show you how this is reflected in the text in just a minute. But here, this dragon is ready to eat the baby. And so as John watches this, and as we're reading this, we're supposed to feel a moment of tension before we move on. Try to visualize this. For a moment there, you've got this seven-headed, hideous, red dragon, red monster, ready to eat the baby, and there appears to be no one who can save her or the baby. It looks like there's no hope. It looks like there's no way that this is going to end well. We're supposed to be biting our nails in tension at this moment. Is the baby going to survive? Is, he, is she going to give birth? Is everything going to be okay? Then in verse 5, we see a picture of a messianic escape. Look at verses 5 and 6. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. He lives. He escapes. The baby is born. It's a boy. And the dragon does not eat the baby. Now look at the way the baby is described. This description is how John reveals the identity of the baby. Who is this baby boy? John describes him as one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Again, John draws from the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 2, 9. In Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, God addresses David and his great descendant, the one who would be the Messiah, and God says to that messianic descendant, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Thus, for those who know their Old Testament, John has clearly identified the baby as the Messiah. That's who the baby is. That's who we're celebrating during the Christmas season. And that makes this passage a very fitting Christmas text. The birth of the dragon slayer, the prince who would kill the dragon and rescue the princess. But the picture is different than we expect. Because we know the story of the Messiah. He doesn't disappear and go to the throne immediately after his birth, right? But that is the picture John is given here. What's going on? I think John is being given a picture of the bookends of the career of the Messiah. The whole life of Christ by highlighting his birth and his ascension. So in the vision, he's born and then he's caught up to God. That's the word Paul uses 
in 1 Thessalonians 4 to refer to the rapture of the church. In this vision, this baby is depicted as being snatched up and taken up to the throne of God. But when we think of the life of Christ, we know that he lived for 33 years or thereabout, and then he died, and then he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to sit on his throne. That's all depicted in a moment's time in this vision before John's eyes. In the next passage, we're going to see the death of Jesus highlighted and emphasized, and that becomes the key to understanding what's going on here. But first, after the ascension is depicted, verse 6 talks about the woman fleeing into the wilderness. Who is the woman? She still represents the faithful remnant of Israel, We'll come back to her in just a minute because John comes back to her down in verse 14. There, he'll explain why she flees. But verses 7 through 12 really form the heart of this chapter, the heavenly victory. So if Revelation 12 is the heart of the book of Revelation, and verses 7 to 12 are the heart of chapter 12... Then Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12, is the most important passage in the whole book of Revelation, and maybe in the whole Bible. Before we look at the details, let me make a brief observation about how this passage is often handled. Many folks envision a time gap between verses 5 and 6 and verse 7, a gap of at least a couple thousand years, so that what's depicted in verses 7 through 12 is something that's going to happen at the end of human history in the middle of what they call the tribulation. Then the event described in verses 7 to 12 is said to kick off what they call the great tribulation. I don't see it that way, personally. I see this as following immediately after what was just described, the ascension of Jesus. And I, absolutely, I see absolutely no reason to force in any kind of historical gap. The Greek of verse 7, the the first word is simply and. It just continues the story. So what happens next? What happened right after Jesus' ascension? What we're about to see, and this is the main point, the main message I want you to get today, is that Satan is a great failure. This chapter is depicting his failure. His failure at every turn. Every time he attempts to do something in this chapter, he fails. He tried to devour the baby. He failed. What happened next? Look at verses 7 through 9. Here we see the defeated devil. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I love these verses. They're so good. We see here the defeat of the devil, and it is glorious and beautiful. And we need to be reminded of it. And what a time to remember that this foe that we so often get worried about and fearful of as Christians is utterly defeated. What a day to celebrate and remember that. You've got to remember that the goal of Christmas, the goal of the birth of Jesus is Good Friday and Easter. 
The goal of Christmas is Good Friday and Easter, and ultimately the defeat of this great red dragon. So what happened? Think about it like this. The devil had been on earth with his forces, attempting to destroy the Messiah at his birth and then throughout his life. So Satan and demons were on the earth because the Son of God was on the earth. As you read the Gospels, you read about demons so frequently. But during the Old Testament, you hardly ever read about demons or evil spirits. Their activity on the earth seems to be ramped up when Jesus is on the earth. But what do you see in the Gospels? Their failure. They oppress and possess people. And then Jesus shows up. They can't beat Jesus. He commands and they flee. Well, then when Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to his throne, what would the devil do? Well, he's going to try to chase him down. He's really stupid, don't you see? He doesn't know that he can't win. Or maybe he does, but he's so stupid that he keeps on trying. When Jesus ascends, the dragon and his demonic forces go up into the heavenly throne room to chase him down. I take these verses quite literally. War arose in heaven. This is not some figurative battle, and I don't think... I don't think it's some future battle that hasn't taken place yet. If verses 1 through 6 depicted Satan's opposition to the birth of Jesus and then the ascension of Jesus in figurative terms, depicted in a vision across the sky, the dragon assaulting the woman and her baby, in verses 7 through 9, John transitions to the actual heavenly results of the real earthly events of Satan's attempts to destroy the Messiah. Satan took his forces from earth to heaven because that's where Jesus went. And so I think we're given here a unique glimpse into what happened in heaven after the ascension of Jesus. Jesus sat on his throne and war broke out in heaven. But look at the way this is described. Jesus doesn't even get involved. What does he do? He's sitting on his throne. And he essentially just says, hey, Michael, go take care of that riffraff. The dragon and his forces are encroaching in on the throne room of God, and Jesus just sits there and says, hey, Michael, go take a squad and deal with that. And look at what happens. The first four words of verse 8 are just beautiful, and they're even better in Greek. The ESV says, but he was defeated. The Greek is simple and utterly profound. He was not strong. The devil was not strong. Don't you need a reminder of that? When you look around at the world and it looks like the devil is winning against us and against the world, he's not strong when he comes against God and his forces. We depict Satan so often in our imagination and in our traditions as powerful, but the Bible never describes him that way. He's never described as powerful. The Bible describes him as deceptive and crafty and tricky, but he is not powerful. He's often described as the greatest of the angels at one time originally in our traditions. But here... 
see Michael. He's no match for Michael. If he's greater than other angels, I don't know. But he's no match for Michael and his forces. And I'll show you there's even more on how quick and simple Michael's defeat of him really was in just a moment. Look again at verse 9. Satan is depicted as being thrown down. Three times it's repeated. He's thrown down to the earth. I believe that what's happened here is that God is finally done with Satan's presence in the heavenly throne room. If you remember from the Old Testament, we get a couple of little vignettes where Satan is appearing in the throne room of God, having a conversation with God. The book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, Zechariah chapter 3. What's he doing there? He's pictured as kind of a prosecuting attorney, standing there bringing charges against God's people. That seems to be his appropriate place, his proper role, if you will. He's got the right to be there, accusing God's people in the Old Testament period. But I believe in this text, we are taught that after the ascension of Jesus, his right to be there is over and done. He's been thrown out of court. He's been disbarred. He's been thrown out of God's courtroom, and he is never allowed to return to bring accusations against God's people. I love the way one writer describes this. The dragon and his hosts, no match for Michael and his angels, falls out of the sky in a heap. Bounced is more like it. Unceremoniously tossed out. The terrorizing names, great dragon, ancient serpent, devil, Satan, deceiver of the whole earth, are a pile of dirty laundry on the ground. We see the significance of this in verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11, we read a poem or a song or a hymn that tells us the meaning and the significance of the event that was just described. As you read through the book of Revelation... There are several songs or poems or hymns, and it's actually those songs that explain the significance of what's been visualized. What is heard explains what has been seen. That's a pattern throughout the book of Revelation. We see this gospel celebration in verses 10 and 11. John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now! the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Here we get an announcement for all of God's people. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ, of His Messiah, have come. I believe that's in connection with His death, resurrection, and ascension. He's now sitting on His throne. He sat down at the right hand of God when He ascended to heaven. And that is where He remains until He returns. But this announcement explains to us that His authority... His power, His kingdom has come. The time of salvation is now because of what He's done. And I'm reminded of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. 
He says that right before he goes to heaven to sit on the throne. He's risen from the dead, and now he's going to sit on the throne. And what does he say? All authority, all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. He's not going to get any more authority at any time later. He's got it all right now at that point. And I believe that's what this voice is celebrating here. That the authority of the Messiah is in place. He's sitting on his throne. But the reason that's given in Revelation 12.10 is that the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, has been thrown down, thrown out of court. What's the significance of this? Well, I think it's basically the same thing that the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 8. Remember Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Then in Romans 8.33, he adds, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Bring a charge or accuse in a courtroom. And the answer is nobody, not Satan, not anybody can bring a charge against God's people in God's courtroom. Why? Paul goes on to say in Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus has taken our sin, paid the debt, so that Satan can't bring any more charges against us because there are no more charges to be brought. Colossians 2.14 depicted the same truth as canceling the record of debt. He's erased the ledger with your name on it. And that's talking about all of your sin, past, present, and future. So Satan's got nothing to bring into court. He's got no evidence against you. It's been wiped away. That's what Revelation 12 is depicting. Satan's been tossed out. He's been disbarred. But notice that the victory here is not only Jesus' victory, it's ours also. Look at verse 11 again. They, the brothers, our brothers, all those connected to each other and connected to Jesus, they have conquered him. They have become victorious over him. They have overcome him. How? He mentions three grounds for this. First, and this one is the most important, and it causes the other two to be true. By the blood of the Lamb. There's the death of Jesus depicted for us. That's what's being celebrated most of all. Even when we sit down at Christmas, let us not simply think about the baby in the manger. He was born to die. The goal of Christmas was always Good Friday and Easter. It's interesting to me that in our traditions... We have put more of an emphasis on Christmas than we do on Easter. We spend more money. We do more things to celebrate Christmas. And really, it's just the beginning point and the gateway to get us to Good Friday and Easter. And that's the point here. How did the victory come? By the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb was what washed our sin away. The blood of the Lamb is what paid our debt so that Satan has nothing to accuse us for. If he brought accusations that were true before God, God is just and he must condemn us. But God, the judge himself, provided a way by sacrificing his own son, the Lamb here, so that we wouldn't have to be condemned, so that Satan's 
accusations could not even be accepted, admitted into court. Secondly, they have conquered him by the word of their testimony. What's that? We often think about a testimony as telling the story about how I became a Christian. But in the Bible, testimony does not refer to that. That's a good thing to do, but the word of their testimony in the book of Revelation refers to proclaiming the gospel. It's talking about the testimony about Jesus. The word of their testimony means they have received the gospel. They have personally become cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and now they talk about it. It's the message that they proclaim. The word of their testimony defeats the devil. It continues embracing that victory because it announces that victory. It tells people who don't know the war has been won. It's the announcement of victory that continues on. And that's our call to continue proclaiming the gospel at Christmas time and all throughout the year. Finally, we see another reason. In the midst of proclaiming the gospel, they loved not their lives even unto death. This helps us see the value that God's people should place on that message, on our testimony about Jesus. William Barclay writes, The martyrs are victorious because they lived the great principle of the gospel. They did not consider life more important than loyalty. That's actually the one major application point that comes from the whole book of Revelation. Endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. That's what God calls us to do from the book of Revelation. Because you love Christ more than you love your life. Endure suffering in all of its forms. Is your loyalty to Jesus more important than your life? Is your loyalty to Jesus so deep that you'd go to the grave defending it? Verse 12 then gives us a picture of the reaction of all of the universe, so to speak. We see a picture of heavenly joy, earthly grief, and satanic wrath. Verse 12, Therefore, in light of this great victory that has been won in the death of Jesus and in his ascension to heaven to sit on the throne, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So all of the souls of the righteous up to that point who are living in heaven and all of the angels living in heaven get to celebrate and rejoice. Why? Because Satan no longer comes among them like he used to do in the book of Job in the Old Testament period. They don't have to look at his ugly face anymore. They don't have to hear him bringing accusations against God's people ever again. And so joy, unrestrained joy, is called for in response to this great victory. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He is confined to the realm of the earth and he's upset because he can't do any heavenly permanent damage to God's people anymore. He really, he's really, really mad. And so those who live on earth, those who are living in bodies, should watch out because he's coming after us. Verses 13 to 17 give us a picture of serpentine revenge. 
Now we get to revisit verse 6 and see why the woman fled after the ascension of the baby. Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that it had been thrown down to the earth, <laughs> just stop there for just a minute. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, look at it. Suddenly he realizes, I'm not in heaven anymore. I mean, Michael and his angels have trounced him. <laughs> Michael and angels' defeat of the devil, throwing him down. Don't envision that there's some long, protracted war in heaven. That's not what's described here. He was no match for Michael and his angels. He's suddenly on earth. And he looks around and says, I'm not in heaven anymore. What happened? Well, Michael trounced him. And he becomes aware of that there in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The male child's not there anymore. He's sitting on his throne in heaven. So the dragon reasons, let me go after the woman. I have to ask the question again, who is the woman here? It's strange to me, as I read different students of Scripture from all kinds of theological perspectives, but many folks suddenly say, well, now the woman has to represent somebody different. I don't understand why we have to do that. The woman should be the same at the beginning as she is at the end. So who's the woman? The faithful remnant of Israel. But think about this for just a minute. After the ascension of Jesus, so that's the pivotal moment that I see on display here in this passage. After the ascension of Jesus, who makes up the faithful remnant of Israel? Well, it's all those Jewish people who are trusting in Jesus. I mean, consider the book of Acts. In the opening of the book of Acts, you've got 120 Jewish people trusting in Jesus. And so I think that's what's being depicted here. You've got 120 people, Jewish people trusting in Jesus, and then the Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches, and 3,000 more Jewish people believe in Jesus. They are the faithful remnant of Israel. You cannot be a part of the faithful remnant of Israel if you don't trust in Jesus. And so I think that's what's on display here for us. So the woman that's being described here is still the faithful remnant of Israel. She's those Jewish people who believe in Jesus in the early days of the church. That's the faithful remnant of Israel. Verse 14 then describes her fleeing yet further. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. This imagery is drawn from Exodus 19. When the people of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai, God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and he says in Exodus 19, 4, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so for these Jewish Christians, these believers in Jesus, that's what's happened. God has executed another exodus as he promised he would in the prophets. He's rescued them from their slavery and brought them to himself. And so he's depicting in this visual form a woman with eagle's wings. And the point is simple. God is going to protect his people. That's the simple point of what's going on here. It's an image for the protection of God's people and His provision for them. They are to be nourished during this time. 
In verse 15, the dragon goes after her in a particular way. But notice that here John refers to him suddenly as the serpent. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. What's being depicted here? When something comes out of somebody's mouth in poetry or in visionary text in the Bible like this, deception is often being depicted. People lying and attempting to deceive people. And that's probably what's going on here. So this would reflect all of the various attempts to draw the Jewish believers away from their Messiah in the early days of the church. Consider, for example, the Judaizers. Paul wrestled against in the churches of Galatia and Colossae, or especially those from Jerusalem who pressured Peter into remaining separate from Gentiles, and even the aggressive opposition of Saul of Tarsus and those like him who worked to see Jews who followed Jesus imprisoned and executed. Look at verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Simple point again, the dragon fails in his attempt. The serpent fails, and God protects his people, described with more imagery from the book of Exodus and how God saved his people from Egypt. Verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who are these offspring? Well, I think by the way they're described, it's pretty obvious that they're Christians. They're holding to the testimony of Jesus. They're remaining faithful to the gospel. This is probably depicting the larger spread of the gospel in the expansion of the church so that it becomes not just Jewish believers in Jesus, but Gentile believers as well, all Christians. You see, the dragon fails in his attempt to kill the Messiah himself. And so he chases the Messiah up to heaven, and he fails there because Michael throws him out. He fails again when he comes back down and goes after the earliest church, attempting to deceive those earliest Jewish believers, to draw them away from their Savior. He fails, and then he goes against the rest of the church, describing them just this way. John is using language that he used John used in his gospel and in his first letter to identify followers of Jesus. Here in the book of Revelation, undoubtedly he has his first century audience primarily in mind as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Thus this satanic wrath is what we've seen in history since the early church, since the first century and on up through today, specifically in the persecution of the church. In Revelation 12, we don't get to see what happens next. We don't get to see the rest of the story immediately. The rest of the book of Revelation tells the continuing story. In the next couple of chapters, famously depict the two beasts, one coming from the earth and one coming from the sea. You see, the dragon needs some help, and so he goes to fetch a couple of helpers from the earth. But ultimately, what we're supposed to see and what we, would, what we would go on to see in the book of Revelation is that they all fail. That's the point. But as we bring this message to a conclusion this morning, we should indeed look at the final doom of the devil. 
We see in this chapter, Revelation 12, the birth of the dragon slayer, but we don't actually get to see the dragon slain. But it behooves us to go there and see it, depicted for us in Revelation chapter 20. As the victory of Jesus is depicted as his ascension to the highest throne, think about this visually, as ascension to the highest throne, so the doom of the devil is depicted as a descent to the deepest darkness, darkest dungeon. The end of Revelation 19 depicts the arrival of Jesus, his second advent. The rider on the white horse comes and slays the wicked. And then we read in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Note that. In chapter 12, the dragon is thrown down from heaven to earth by an angel. So now, an angel's got to go down from heaven to earth to get him. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The bottomless pit, or the abyss, is not hell. We often get some confusion going on here. The bottomless pit is a part of the place where the souls of wicked dead people go. Hades, or Sheol, as the Bible calls it in other places. It's not hell. So this place where he's going to be thrown is not hell yet. So up to this point, Satan's been thrown down from heaven to earth, and now an angel comes down to get him, and then verses 2 to 3. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that... He must be released for a little while. Notice the descent of Satan here. He's been thrown down in chapter 12 from heaven to earth. And now in chapter 20 at the beginning, he's thrown down from earth down into the abyss, the place of the dead. Now skip down to verse 10. Revelation 20 verse 10. After the thousand years have ended, the millennium is over. Satan is released for a brief moment of time to deceive the nations. And then verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the final doom of Satan is to be confined to hell forever and ever and to experience the torment that he so richly has earned in his opposition to God and his people. The prince has come to slay the dragon and rescue the princess. Christmas really is a fitting time to celebrate the ultimate victory that has been won. We live between the comings, the advents of Christ. We live in the midst of Advent in that sense. Christ's first coming, and we anticipate his second coming, described in Revelation 19 so vividly. It's, been, it's often been compared to the events that we know of from history, from World War II, the difference between D-Day and V-Day. Revelation 12 describes what we could call D-Day. D-Day was when the Allied troops landed in Europe, and it marked the ultimate certain doom of the Axis powers in World War II. It was the decisive operation that guaranteed Germany was going to lose. That's like the first coming of Christ. He has dealt the death blow to the devil. 
the ultimate victory has been won. But just like in between D-Day and V-Day of World War II, fighting continued. There were casualties. Lots of people died. Fighting continued. And so it does during our season of life here. The devil is angry because he knows he's lost. And he's after us. And in all of his hostility, we need to remember that the victory has been won. It is certain. And it is done. Whatever he can do to us, he cannot harm us permanently. And so, we look forward to V-Day, the day that the Axis forces finally surrendered in the end of World War II. And then we will find the dragon himself slain and defeated and thrown into hell forever and ever. And that is what we should look forward to. That is our hope. What is the book of Revelation for, ultimately? What is this chapter for? One writer answers this way. John's imagination is adrenaline to us of little faith. And we are again dauntless, unimpressed by dragon bluster, sure of God's preservation. And when we read this chapter in conjunction with Christmas, we need to remember the child survives, salvation is assured, and God's rule is intact. Let us pray. Father, thanks for this great victory. Thanks for this picture that you have shown us of the significance of the great work of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for loving us enough that your Son would go to war for us, that he would come and experience death and pain and suffering out of love for us. Thank you, Father. Would you help us to celebrate and be grateful for that great love? Would you help us to live in light of the victory that's been won? Would you help us to put aside fear of the devil? Would you help us to put aside fear of what he can or cannot do? Help us to be more focused and more attentive and more concerned about what you are doing than what the devil may or may not be doing. Oh, Father, help us not to be distracted by the enemy's bluster. And that is all it is. He may be like a roaring lion. Let him roar. And let the church of God be not afraid. Oh, Father, fill us with strength and confidence and courage as we press on walking by faith and not by sight. We celebrate and rejoice in the love that you have shown us by sending your Son to die for us. Would you help us to proclaim the victory loud and clear this Christmas season and all year round. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.